Um, Danny's away uh, on holiday this evening, so I'm going to give our next talk uh, in this prayer series. And the title tonight is What Happens When We Pray? What Happens When We Pray? Has everyone got a, a handout that they can see? There's a few Bible verses on there that we'll be looking at as we, as we go through. Now, as you read the Bible, you'll come up against a lot of conundrums and tensions that you need to work through, things that make your brain ache a little bit. And if you've never found that to be the case, then I would suggest that probably you're not reading the same Bible that I am. There's a lot of conundrums within uh, the Bible. And one big one that we all sort of think about and face is that tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Now, we thought a little bit about this last term in our uh, Real Feed series. We're going to come to it again um, as we think about this topic of prayer. On the one hand, God is totally sovereign, isn't he? All things are in his complete control. He's the master of the universe. He's involved in every single aspect of this world. The Bible says that not a sparrow will fall to the ground without God knowing Not a hair on your head is lost without God deciding that it should happen. And not a collision of an atom will occur without his permission. God is sovereign and all things happen according to his purpose. On the other hand, as we read the Bible, we know that we're also responsible for our decisions. We find that we're held accountable for our actions. I'm responsible for what I do and what I fail to do. um, And as are you. And one of the things we commanded to do in the midst of this tension, is to pray. Now, prayer is one of those areas, isn't it, where we feel that conundrum, that tension between God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But I think it can start to be resolved as we think about what we saw last week in our talk on prayer. We concluded last week by saying that God um, is our heavenly father, as Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6. And that phrase, heavenly father, tells us two things about God. It tells us he's able and it tells us that he is willing. He's able because he's heavenly, he's transcendent, he's powerful over all things. And he's willing because he is our father. Through the work of Jesus on the cross, sinful people like me and you have been cleansed of all our impurities, forgiven of all of our unrighteousness and have been adopted into the family of Christ. We can call God our father and so he is willing to answer our prayers. He's able and willing. But this leads to an important question. If God is sovereign, does prayer actually change anything at all? And if you ever ask yourself that question, does prayer actually do anything if God already has his plans and if he's sovereign over this universe? And if prayer does change things, then doesn't that mean that God is no longer sovereign over this world? If God is in control, if he has his plans worked out, And if his plans cannot fail, then surely our prayers can't change God's plans. Do you see the the problem that we encounter when it comes to this issue of prayer? God will do what God will do, whether we pray or not, we might say. So why pray? And on the other hand, if prayer does change things, then surely we should pray as if our lives depended on it. And then what does that then do with our sense of burden when it comes to prayer? What's the answer then to these important questions? Well, let me tell you a joke. A man was stuck on a rooftop in a flood. You might have heard this joke. In his desperation, he prayed to God for help. 
Soon a man uh, came by in a canoe and the guy shouted to the man on the roof, jump in, I can save you. But the stranded man shouted back, no, it's okay, I'm, I'm praying to God and, and he's going to save me. So the canoer paddled off. Then a lifeboat came along and the man shouted to the guy on the roof, jump in, we can save you. But the guy on the roof said, no, no thanks, I'm, I'm praying to God and he's going to save me, I, I have faith. So the lifeboat moves on. A little later, a helicopter uh, comes by and the pilot shouts down to the person, grab this rope and I will lift you to safety. And to the stranded man, and he again replies, no thanks, I'm praying to God and he's going to save me. So the helicopter reluctantly flies away. Now soon the water rises above the rooftop and the man is drowned and he goes to heaven and he finally gets a chance to discuss this situation with God. At which point he says, I had faith in you, but why didn't you save me? You let me drown. I don't understand why. To which God replied, I sent you a canoe and a motorboat and a helicopter. What more did you expect? Now, it's an old joke, but it expresses a very common confusion. And that's the fundamental fact that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. God uses means to accomplish his purposes. He uses the means of our actions, both good and bad, and he uses the means of our prayers to accomplish his plans. But this raises a question, a challenging question of who is responsible for the success or failure of God's work on earth. Is God ultimately responsible or are we ultimately responsible through our prayers? We need to grapple with this whole area of responsibility. Now, we know um, that Jesus has given us the Great Commission and has told us that the gospel must be preached to all nations. But who is responsible for that commission to be fulfilled? It's easy, I think, to use God's sovereignty as a bit of a get out clause for fulfilling that uh, mission. A get out clause that excuses our own uh, inaction. You might have heard of William Carey, who's sometimes called the father of modern missions. And young Carey um, had been convicted of the need to uh, preach the gospel to the nations and evangelise the world. And so he went and told the elders of his church that he wanted to go to India to preach the gospel. This was in the late 18th century. And this is the response he got from an older minister who stood up and replied uh, with these words on the sheet. Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Do you see what he's saying? In other words, God will fulfil his plans and he'll do it without you and he'll do it without me. It sounds quite godly. It sounds almost right. But it ends up ignoring the fact that God has chosen to use means to accomplish his plans. The truth in the Bible is that God is responsible for salvation, but the normal way that he works is to use human means to bring that about. So let's have a look at a few examples on the sheet. Firstly, 1 Corinthians 3, uh, verses 5 to 7. Here Paul says, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, says Paul, Apollos watered it, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So he gives the growth in these verses. God gives the growth, but how does he do it? He uses 
means he uses Apollos and Paul who plant and water the seed of the gospel and the gospel grows up um, in these uh, these people. There are many other examples within the Bible which tell us that we are responsible. So have a look at 1 Corinthians 9 uh, verse 19 and verse 27. This is Paul again speaking. He says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I beat my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Have a look at Acts 14, verse 1. At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. So can you see um, there that the operation of God's sovereignty comes within uh, the means of human responsibility. Paul and Barnabas worked really hard on their preaching. They worked hard to communicate the message of the gospel. And they spoke so effectively that people were converted. Does that compromise God's sovereignty, you might ask? Well, no, it just shows that one of the ways that God works sovereignly to save people is through people working hard to preach his word. People like Paul. Now, we often, I think, operate on this sort of flat, this or that uh, sort of plane. Sometimes we think that what we do directly leads to results. For example, that's one way of thinking. Um, Or we think that it doesn't matter what we do and God is going to do it anyway. We either fall off on one side or the other. So on the first side, we might think, well, if church is not growing or people are not being converted, then it's 100% down to us. We need to work harder, preach harder, cajole, persuade. And that will lead to despair and burnout or perhaps pride or perhaps manipulation. That's sort of one side. But other times we might think, well, no, growth doesn't depend on me at all. It's all down to God. And so if church is not growing or people are not being converted, it's down to him. We're not responsible. See how we could sort of fall off both sides of that um, equation. But the Bible gives us a much richer and more nuanced picture. We work and God works. And God works through our work. He uses human means. He achieves his purposes through the means that he has given. Now, as a a Christian parent, I know this instinctively, and so does every Christian parent. We can do all we can in the home to teach and to model and to explain and to instruct and to make sure our homes are places where the gospel is uh, at the centre. But we also pray like crazy that our children will be saved by the grace of God. It is God's work, but he uses means. And one place in the New Testament where we see these two things coming together really clearly is in Colossians 1, uh, verse 28 and 29 on the sheet. Here we see that it's both God's work and our work as we proclaim Jesus. Paul says, we proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end, I labour, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. Do you see Paul's effort? He proclaims Christ and he does so with all the energy that God powerfully works within him. So all of that, I suppose, is a general sort of introduction to this topic as we think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And now I want to think about particularly the topic of prayer. The first thing to say about prayer is that prayer changes things. 
Our prayers change things because the Bible says that they do. Have a look at Exodus 32 on the sheet. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? And here's now uh, the prayer of Moses. Lord, turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. He heard Moses' prayer. He listened to Moses' prayer and things changed. Or James 4 verses 2 and 3. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. That first sentence is really striking, isn't it? Very clear. You do not have... Because you do not ask God. If they asked, they would have. Now James illustrates this point with an Old Testament example a little bit later on in James. He talks about Elijah. He says, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Elijah was a man just like us. James says he wasn't a superhero, he wasn't an angel, but when he prayed, God stopped it from raining for three years. His prayers altered not just the weather, but the whole climate. Clearly our prayers can make a difference in this world. God hears them, God responds to them, and things change in our lives and in our worlds. Now, this is interesting, I think, because the Bible uh, fully understands the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. It's not as if we as Christians are the first ones to think that there's a tension here or something to be worked out. The Bible is aware of that. God is aware of that tension that we that we feel. But at the same time, he says that prayers do make a difference and we're commanded, we're told to pray Now, the problem, I think, with this is not the truths of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. I think the problem primarily is our lack of trust in those truths to both be true at the same time. I think there's a a spiritual problem that underlies this, not just an intellectual problem. Because we basically say, I can't understand how these two things relate together. And because I can't understand them, then basically they can't be true. I think we say that kind of thing, don't we? And it's an arrogant position because I can't understand it. Well, surely then it can't be true because if I can't understand it, then um, it can't be it can't be true because it doesn't make sense to me. Now, that's not to say that we've got to believe in something that is unbelievable or nonsense or logically contradictory. But we mustn't allow our lack of understanding or our confusion to deny what is clearly in the Bible. Instead, we must humbly submit to the word of God and seek greater understanding in what God's word says. And to say, God, you know best and you know what we can't understand. And so we'll trust in you. So let's think um, a bit more then about God's sovereignty and our responsibility and the topic of prayer. Let's come back to where we began this talk. It all comes down to the nature of God. Jesus tells us that God is our heavenly father. He is sovereign, but he's also personal. Now just have a think with me about if God was only one of those and not the other. So imagine if God was only heavenly, only sovereign. We might say that there's no point in praying because 
if God is so transcendent, so far above us, then why would he listen to me? Why would he answer my prayers? He would be able, but we'd think maybe he isn't willing. But if God were only father and not heavenly, then he'd be willing because he's a father, but he wouldn't be able to answer our prayers. And again, there'd be no point in praying because God couldn't do anything about our prayers. But we see in the Lord's Prayer that God is our heavenly father. He's both able and willing. He's transcendent and personal. He's God, but he's also our father. He exists beyond and above time. He's planned everything in this world to happen according to his perfect will. Yet he's personal and he loves to relate to us and he invites us to relate to him. Now, we find it hard, I think, to understand how we can relate to a person who's beyond time and space. But through the gospel, God invites us to enjoy this relationship through prayer. So let's look at a few examples from the Bible of these types of prayers in action from people who believe both in the ability of God um, and also in the willingness of God uh, to answer prayer. Let's have a look at uh, Daniel chapter 9, firstly, verses 1 to 3. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel's in exile at the time, away from the land of uh, Jerusalem. So I turned to the Lord God and pleaded with him in prayer and petition, in fasting and in sackcloth and ashes. I think this is a really interesting example of how uh, somebody who believes in the sovereignty of God and the plans of God also prays. So Daniel reads and understands from the scriptures, I think from, uh, yeah, it's from the book of Jeremiah, that the exile is only going to last for 70 years. God had promised that in Jeremiah. And what does God, uh, what does Daniel do when he understands that? Well, it's at the end there. He turns to the Lord and he pleads with him in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes. It's because of the promise of God that Daniel then prays that that promise would come about. It doesn't stop him from praying. It actually encourages him um, to pray. I think that's really interesting. Here's another example um, from uh, God, uh, from Genesis, where Abimelech um, is spoken to by God in a dream. Then God said to him, Abimelech, in the dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her, talking about Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. So I just want to focus on that um, second to last sentence there. Um, where God tells Abimelech that Abraham will pray for him and he will live. So God has already decided that Abimelech will live and he has decided to use Abraham's prayers to fulfil that plan. He uses the means of um, Abraham's prayers to fulfil his purposes. And then finally, uh, 1 John 5 verse 14 This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know and if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. 
So here's the, the big point, and we'll talk through this diagram in a moment. God has chosen to do what he wants to do. He has a plan. He has a purpose in this world. And he does it in answer to the prayers of his people when we pray in keeping with his will. So have a look at this diagram, which will also be um, on the screen. So God reveals his will to us uh, in his word. He has a plan uh, for where this world is heading and for what he's going to do in this world. And he chooses to use the means of the prayers of his people, Christians praying, asking God to do what he's planned to do. And he weaves those things into his purposes. God uses our prayers as a means to fulfil the purposes that he has in this world. That's how he's chosen to work. I'm just going to give you a moment uh, to just turn to a neighbour. Maybe uh, just chat about any sort of questions you've got about uh, what I've said so far. And then think about this question. Why would God choose to work in this way? Now, God could have just done what he wanted to do without using the prayers of his people. But he's chose to use the means of his people's prayers to accomplish his purposes. So the question is, why? Why do you think God has chosen to work that way. Just turn with a neighbour and uh, have a couple of minutes thinking about that question. Okay, let's hear let's hear some thoughts from the floor. So stick up a hand. Um, why do you think God has chosen to work um, in this way? Lani said it was relational. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that, Lani? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's prayer. Just feels like it feels like God could, could he obviously could do it Yeah, brilliant. That's great. Anyone want to say anything else about that? Anybody else talk about about that point? Great. Any other thoughts? Lydia said something really good. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anne, why don't you relay it to us? <laughs> she said, like, prayer is not about us inviting God into our lives, but God inviting us into Yeah, great. And again, relational, very relational for him to do that. Yeah, brilliant. Any others? I think it ties into the way that God works in our world. That he talks about one Corinthians, but he uses the weak things of the world to shame the wise and foolish things. Um, yeah, so shame the wise in that way. So it's like the way that God brings people in and shows his power. Yeah. And he doesn't like, as Danny was saying, to tell us to avoid to use intervention because God sustains and makes everything in the same way. God is powerful to use weak people, including our foolish actions and our good actions, to bring about his purposes. Yeah, yeah it's not just in prayer he does that, it's, it's all, all, all of life, isn't it? Yeah, I think we wouldn't be, just another couple of thoughts, wouldn't be humble in the same way in terms of relying on God for everything that we need. And we probably also wouldn't be as thankful because we wouldn't have that joy of having answered prayer um, as we pray to the Lord and hear him answer those prayers that we pray. 
So yeah, lots of reasons. Let's keep uh, talking about these things over dinner. But um, I wanted to listen to how Chris Farash uh, puts it in his uh, book, Where Was God When That Happened? And I think it sums up some of the things that we've been saying. Um, talking about God here, uh, Chris Farash says, God instructs us from the Bible about what pleases him. He puts into our hearts a longing for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we pray as he has moved us to pray. And then he does what he wants to do and has chosen to do. But most wonderfully, he's chosen to do it only when we pray for it. In this extraordinary way, God draws us into his government of the world so that our God-shaped desires and yearnings actually shape what happens. There is no higher privilege. God doesn't need our prayers, but in his kindness, he chooses to use our prayers just as he doesn't need our evangelism, but chooses to use our words about Jesus. He's given us prayer as the means by which we take hold of the many blessings that he has in store for us. Gives us prayer so that we might learn to trust him, so that we might thank him, so we might give glory to him and relate to him as our father. So what happens when we pray? Joe, you haven't heard anything, but this last line is good. God works out his purposes in his world as we pray.